It occurred to me this week while preparing for today that I invest a fair amount of uh, energy and thought into figuring out ways to avoid waiting. Uh, No one likes to wait. I try to avoid waiting as much as possible. Do you? Here's some of the ways that I try to avoid waiting. We really like our pediatrician, but he tends to spend too much time with each of his patients, so he's always behind. So we try to schedule the appointment either early in the morning or right after lunch when he hasn't had time to get behind yet. And uh, 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 whenever we go out for a restaurant on Friday or, or Saturday, I always want to get there earlier. I don't, I don't want to be handed one of those little buzzers and have to sit in the lobby with everybody. Uh, last Saturday, we went to Hershey Park, and I downloaded an app on my phone that lists all the wait times for all the rides. The, and I consulted it regularly because I don't want to go and wait in line. Uh, one of the reasons that we subscribe to Amazon Prime is that things come in two days, and I don't have to wait I don't think I'm an especially impatient person. I really don't, but I try to avoid waiting as as much as possible. This is a terrible month for waiting, isn't it? Especially if you're about 10 or a little bit younger. That tree goes up in your house with lights and decorations on it, and then for the rest of the month of December, it stands there and mocks you. (laughs) Because you know, you know in 15 days now, Underneath that tree, when you wake up in the morning, there's going to be boxed happiness just for you. And you have to wait. You have to wait. Uh, This morning we dedicated babies. There's a lot of waiting involved in babies, aren't there? Nine months of waiting. Some of them waited anxiously for that ultrasound so they would know whether or not they're going to have a son or daughter. And, And as the due date gets closer... You get more and more anxious. Parents wait. Grandparents wait. It's not easy. Do you remember the Russian comedian Yakov Smirnov? That's old. Yakov Smirnov was, uh, uh, grew up in the Soviet Union and came to the United States and, and made a career really out of comparing the Soviet Union and the United States. He, he said this. He said, I'll never forget walking down one of the aisles in an American grocery store and seeing powdered milk Just add water and you get milk. Right next to it was powdered orange juice. Just add water and you get orange juice. Then I saw the baby powder and I thought to myself, what a country. (laughs) Call that waiting gone right then. (laughs) I don't like to wait. The problem is waiting is an essential part of following Jesus. So if I want to follow him more closely. I'm going to need to learn how to wait faithfully. That's the subject of our time together today in the Word. And it's the main emphasis in a series of scenes in 2 Samuel chapter 2, where I hope you'll turn with me this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 2 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find one in the pews ahead of you. If you don't have a Bible at all, please take that Bible with you. We'd love for you to leave with a copy of God's Word if you don't have one. It's free for you. Please do take it. That's why they're there. We have extras so that we can give these away. But if you're using the pew Bible, you'll find 2 Samuel 2 on page 301. Page 301 is where 2 Samuel 2 is in the pew Bibles. Today we're going to cover seven years of David's life. David was the second king of Israel. We're going to cover seven years of his life and three chapters, three, oh my goodness, chapters of the book. 
Now, we have been walking through this book of Samuel for quite some time. We're accustomed to long passages of Samuel. Remember the particularities of reading narratives in the Bible. Narratives in the Bible, they take chapters to make points, the same points sometimes that the apostles in the epistles can make in one or two sentences. So we're used to reading chapters at a time. Uh, but we're not going to read all of chapter 2, 3, and 4 today. So, uh, But the reason that I want to consider all of them together at once is because they both begin and end with a coronation. The beginning of chapter 2, David is publicly crowned king of Judah. And at the beginning of chapter 5, he's crowned king of Israel. And in between, there is a lot of bloody years. As we walk through this section of Scripture this morning, I want to share with you three ingredients in waiting faithfully. What does waiting faithfully look like? How do God's people wait? Well, let's start here. Number one, we wait by remembering that waiting is an essential part of following Jesus. Waiting is an essential part of following Jesus. I said that a moment ago. Um, Let's think about it more carefully Uh, everyone here in this room is waiting for something. You're waiting for something, aren't you? You're waiting for your next vacation or you're waiting for a child to graduate or you're waiting for your kids to come from out of town for for, uh, Christmas or you're waiting for the Eagles to make it to the Super Bowl. You're waiting for something, right? You're waiting. As followers of Jesus in a very broad sense, we're all waiting for God to fulfill his promises. See, the reason that waiting is essential for followers of Jesus is because God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. He says what he will do, and in time he does it. And there's a gap between his words and the fulfillment of those promises. And in that gap, we wait. It it sounds so very simple, doesn't it? It's just simple. Yeah, God says what he's going to do, and he does it in between. We just wait. It sounds simple, but what's difficult about that is that God and I don't seem to have the same schedule. I don't seem, our calendars don't always coordinate. The promise at hand in in this text that is open before us this morning is a promise that God made to David all the way back in 1 Samuel 16 when David was still a teenager. And and here, several years later, uh, is the promise being fulfilled. God told David he would be king of Israel. And, and by the time we get to chapter 5, it's going to be fulfilled. But it took 10 years, probably 15 years, before that promise is actually fulfilled. And as chapter 2 opens, the prospects don't seem very good for it to be fulfilled either. <laughs> Do you remember how we got to this point in, in chapter 2? So the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, have invaded the land, and they have in one day decimated the royal house. They killed the king Saul and, and three of his sons. They defeated the army. They occupied the land. Who would want to be crowned king under these conditions? Right? The, the nation is in turmoil Who would want to be king? It's like being told someday that you're going to be the general manager of the Cleveland Browns. We're 0-12 this year, but victory is right around the corner. This is bleak. It's very bleak. The Philistines are occupying the land, so the people are divided and they're on the run. David's tribe in the south is the most put together, Judah, so they crown him king. That's what happens in chapter 2, verse 1. Look at what it says. 
In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord said. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the wife of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his own family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. Ha, huh, great. God's starting to fulfill his promises. Trouble comes, though, verse 8. Look at that verse. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, uh, Abner was also Saul's cousin, actually, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Asheri, and Jezreel, and also, also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. Now we have two kings and a divided nation. It was also a very weak nation. So the chronology points us in this direction. So we've got to think about this here. David was king over Judah for seven and a half years, and Ishbosheth was king over Israel for two years. What happened to the other five and a half years? What was happening in Israel? I think what was happening in Israel is that after the Philistines had defeated the Israelite army and killed Saul, the country was in such a mess that they didn't have the wherewithal to crown a king. It was just chaos. So five and a half years went by before they could get together enough to crown a king. It was that bad. It's just like the time of Judges again. And they're waiting, and David is waiting, and he's waiting. Everyone in this room is waiting for something. Followers of Jesus are waiting for God to fulfill his promises. Can I remind you this morning that, that when we celebrate Christmas, part of that celebration involves rejoicing in the fact that God fulfills his promises? That's what those who were involved in that first day, those first few days and months of the Lord Jesus' earthly life, that's what they celebrated and recognized. Josh read that passage from, from uh, Anna and, and uh, Simeon in the temple, and God, you did what you said you were going to do, and we're, we're celebrating that. Or think about Zechariah, Zechariah the father of John the Baptist. He was told that he, he and his wife were going to have a son and he would be the forerunner of the Messiah. And look at his praise in Zechariah or in Luke 1:67. It says, "Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago." Oh, promise fulfilled. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant promises. The oath he swore to our father Abraham. So the reason this morning we have poinsettias and lit trees and banners in this room is because God is a promise-fulfilling God. And we're awaiting people. When you look at your nativity scene and and you you set it out and you, you read about those men and women remember that you are thinking about some seasoned waiters. And we sing these carols. We remember God fulfills his promises. God does what it says, what he says he will do. Sometimes it takes a long time, but but God fulfills his promises. So we wait. What do we wait for? Well, right now we're waiting for the Lord Jesus to return, aren't we? 
The blessed hope, Paul said in the book of Titus, is the blessed hope for those of us who are followers of Christ. He, he said that every time that we take the Lord's Supper, like we did last week, we proclaim His death until He comes. When you eat that bread and you drink that juice, you are saying two very important things about the Lord Jesus. He came and He's coming again. And we're His waiting people. Some of you this morning feel very keenly in the room that the fact that you're waiting for relief. We're all waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. Some of you are just waiting for the end of sorrows or you're waiting for the end of loneliness or discouragement. This week I went to visit our friend Frances Hershey. Some of you have been to see her. I so appreciate that. Bill and Frances uh, have, will have been married 69 years in February. February is their 69th anniversary. And, and oh, seven or eight weeks ago, somewhere around there, uh, Bill was taken to the hospital. He spent a week in the hospital, and he's been at Conestoga View since then. And Francis said, this is the longest we have ever been apart, and it's so quiet in my house. She said to me, she said, um, I don't really feel like celebrating Christmas this year. I'm really glad, she said, she said, I'm really glad that Jesus came. I'm really glad that God sent his son, and I'm thankful for everything that it means, but I don't really feel like celebrating this year. Some of you are waiting for God to intervene in a situation that you've been praying about. I have things on my prayer list that have been there for a long time. Why hasn't God chosen yet to respond? I'm not praying for frivolous things. I'm not praying for a sports car. I'm not praying for a beach at the house, a house at the beach. A beach at the house would be nice. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not praying for frivolous things. Nothing's happened. Do you know how many times in the book of Psalms the psalmist tells his listeners, wait for the Lord, wait for the Lord? Because God is a promising God, we are waiting people. When when David's son Solomon dedicated the temple that that David wanted to build, he prayed and he said to God in, in 2 Chronicles, he said, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you on heaven or earth, you who keep your covenant of love with your servants who come wholeheartedly in your way. No God keeps promises like our God. You have kept, Solomon said, your promise to your servant David, my father, with your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled as it is today. There's no God who makes and keeps promises like the God that we worship. So waiting faithfully means remembering that that it's essential to following Jesus. Now secondly here, waiting faithfully means refusing to fight our way out of it. It means refusing to fight our way out of it. I struggle with that word fight. I'm not sure it's the best word. Um, uh, What what I mean is that, that in the midst of our waiting, we don't compromise or we don't try to manipulate circumstances. We don't try to fix our way out of it. We wait. We wait. We all face the, situa- uh, the temptation to try to take matters into our own hands and fix things and work what we want. Um, Deepak Raju is a pastor in Washington, D.C. He just wrote a book. It's called, She Got the Wrong Guy, Why Smart Women Settle. Now, if you're married, you shouldn't read this book. But... but um, There's a connection between that book, Why Smart Women Settle, and this passage of Scripture. Let let me show that to you. 
So this is a story in these chapters of a bloody conflict. This is a traumatic transition. It's a civil war, really, that happens in Israel. And here are the names, you can read them, and, uh, and lives of men who knew each other, who fought uh, uh, side by side with each other and are now on opposite sides. Some of them are on Saul's side or the side of Saul's family, Saul's dead, and some of them are on David's side and they're fighting. Every year on Inauguration Day, someone will comment in our country about how remarkable it is that we have this peaceful transition of power, peaceful transfer of power. That is quite astounding. It doesn't seem like 2017 has been as peaceful as usual, but, but most of the time that transition involves just some shenanigans. Some of you remember when George W. Bush was inaugurated, uh, when members of his staff moved into the White House offices, they discovered that members of the Clinton administration had popped all the W's out of the keyboards. Shenanigans. Just shenanigans. Um, it was childish, but it wasn't violent. This is violent. Uh, let's read about one of those battle scenes, okay? So let's, 2 Samuel 2, verse 12, all right? We're going to read a little bit. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon, verse 13. So Saul, uh, Abner is Saul's cousin. Joab, son of, son of Zuriah, um, Joab is David's nephew. And David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool and one group sat down on the other. Two enemy armies facing off. Then Abner said to Joab, the commander of one, said to the commander of the other, let's have some of the youngest young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab says. Seems like Abner wants to solve this with some sort of gladiator contest. Um, some, the translation is odd. It, it, maybe he has in mind something a little friendlier like the Olympics and the winner takes all, but um, oh, it doesn't work. Regardless, it doesn't work. Look, verse 15, this is strange. So they stood up and were counted off, 12 men from Benjamin, Saul's side, and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and 12 for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell on together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkat Hadzarim. Well, that was a nice idea, Abner, but a disaster. So they start fighting. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. The three sons of Zerai were there. So Joab, David's nephew, has two brothers. Remember at one point in time I described them as the Huey, Louie, and Dewey of the Old Testament? Okay, except they're violent. Yeah, here, the, here we go. Joab, Abishai, and Esahel. Now Esahel was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Esahel? It is, he answered. And then Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right or to the left. Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Esahel would not stop chasing Abner. Again, Abner warned, Asahel, uh, stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? Remember, they know each other, they're friends, and they're fighting. But Asahel refused to give up the pursuit, so Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach. I think he's just trying to stop him, knock the air out of him. But Asahel is so fast, and jo- Abner so strong, the spear came out through his back, he fell there and died on the spot, and every man stopped when he came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. These are the brothers. 
And as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Ammon near Gia on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. Then the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner, so they formed ranks. They formed themselves into a group and took their stand on top of a hill. Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? Joab answered, As surely God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued pursuing them until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the troops came to a halt. They no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight anymore. This is not good. Verse 31 of that chapter tells us that David lost 19 men this day. Uh, Abner lost 360 men this day. Fighting. In chapter 3, Abner switches sides. Ishbosheth the king, who is uh, his cousin, accuses Abner, the mighty general, of sleeping with one of Saul's concubines. This is a a grab for royal power. Abner uh, denies it, and he says, if this is how you're going to treat me after I've been so loyal to you, I'm going to go to David's side, and I'm going to take the whole nation with me. Uh, And uh, he met with David. It's in chapter 3. They started to build peace. Joab was not interested in peace, though. He wanted revenge. That actually happens in chapter 3, verse 22. Look what it says here. Just then David's men and Joab returned from a raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron because David had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, he was told that Abner son of Ner had come to the king and that the king had sent him away and that he had gone in peace. So Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he's gone. You know Abner son of Ner. He came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything you're doing. Joab's not interested in peace. Joab then left David and sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern at Sirah, but David did not know it. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into an inner chamber as if to speak with him privately, and there to avenge the blood of his brother Asahel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. Oh, there's problems here. There's a lot of problems here. So in the Old Testament, if your family member was killed by somebody else, you could assume the position of avenger of blood. You could be the avenger and you could rightfully go and, and uh, execute them for killing a member of your family. It's part of the justice system of the Old Testament. If, though, you had killed somebody accidentally or if it wasn't murder, you could run to a city. There were several cities named in the Old Testament scattered around the nation. You could run to these cities. They were cities of refuge. And when you ran to the city, your accuser could come to the city too. And, and in that city, no justice could take place until the elders of the city had made some sort of decision. Here Joab kills Abner. He kills him in one of those cities. And, and one could wonder... Did, uh, did Abner, was Abner guilty of murder with Asahel? He told him to turn back. He told him to stop. It was war. I don't think it was murder. And yet Joab, for vengeance, kills him. And what happens next is that David goes out of his way to disassociate himself with Abner's murder. He showed that he didn't participate in it. He mourned. He fasted. He commanded everyone to mourn Abner's death so that verse 36, here's the result. All the people took note and were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. So on that day, all the people there and all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, son of Ner. David's king of Judah. Israel is very weak. They have a weak king. There's conflict. David's troops win. 
He could have invaded. He could have destroyed Ishbosheth. He could have taken over by force. But David is not going to exacerbate this civil war. He's not going to execute God's people. In chapter 4, we won't read it for uh, time's sake, but in, in chapter 4, the two scoundrels go and kill Ishbosheth. And they bring Ishbosheth's head to David and they say, Look, here's your rival king. He's dead. We killed him. And David said, You think I'm happy about that? And he orders them to be executed. What's happening here is that, that David is waiting. He's waiting. We should be honest about the temptations that are involved in waiting. And one of the temptations is the temptation to compromise or to fight or to bloody your own hands. We're familiar with this because we want to hold on to comfort or security or power. We don't like the tension involved in waiting. So we're just going to fix things ourselves. We're going to manipulate the situation. We're going to compromise. That temptation comes. Think about how David handled this threat to his power differently than Saul. When King Saul thought that David was a threat to him, what did Saul do? He threw a spear at him. He hunted him down to try to kill him. When Herod the Great heard about a baby that he thought was a threat to him, what did Herod do? He went and slaughtered all the babies in a town. Here's a pattern a terrible pattern for people in power. Do what it takes to remain in power. Uh, violence, uh, compromise, it doesn't matter. That's what Saul does. It's what Herod does. It's what the Republican Party does, apparently. Actually, both political parties are dealing with this, aren't they? So there's grievous immorality in Washington or people who want to be in Washington. Grievous immorality. But we've got to maintain control of the Senate. Or we've got to maintain control of the Supreme Court. Or we've got to maintain control of, of Congress. So what will we be willing to overlook? What will we be willing to compromise on in order to maintain our political power? You can't make America great on the back of perversion. I understand the temptation that David is facing here in this situation. You understand it too. It's the temptation to compromise, to manipulate, or as Deepak Rishi, the temptation to settle, to try to fix the situation yourself because you're impatient, or to be agitated and angry because you can't fix it like you want to. Waiting faithfully for God means avoiding, uh, refusing to fight your way out of it. Now we're going to move on here. Before we do that, I just want to make one more observation about the text. The text is very positive about David. Man, he chooses wisely. The text, we read it. Everything the king did pleased them. That's great. But you know, I just, before we move on, there's a couple little seeds here in the text that David plants that are going to come to fruition and it's going to be ugly. Um, one of them is in, in chapter 3, he doesn't do anything to punish Joab for his murder. He doesn't do anything about that. You know, someday, we'll talk about this later in Second Samuel, his sons, are, David's sons, are going to make terrible choices and he's not going to discipline them either. Ugh. Then there's this thing with his wives. Deuteronomy says to the king of Israel, don't multiply wives. Don't be like the kings of other nations and, and get yourself a harem and have a lot of children. Don't do that. And in chapter 3, in the first few verses, 
there it's listed, six sons and six wives. Oh, David. And then there's this thing with, with his, his first wife, Michael. Do you remember Michael? A long time ago, Saul's daughter. Look what happens here. Verse 13 of chapter 3. David is talking to Abner. They're negotiating. He says, I will make an agreement with you in chapter thir- uh, verse 13. But I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband. She'd remarried. Peltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Baharum. Then Abner said to him, Go back home. So he went back. What should we make of this little scene? On the one hand, it's a shrewd political move. David is reminding everybody of his alliance with the house of Saul. Shrewd. But the way the Bible pictures it here, it's just cruel. Like this poor man weeping after his wife. The Bible doesn't comment on it here, but it reminds me of another scene that we're going to come to in a few chapters where David takes somebody else's wife. Overall, the passage is, David is great. He makes wonderful choices. I didn't want to move on before we looked at those seeds because they're going to come to fruition later in the text. Now here's one more ingredient in waiting faithfully. Waiting faithfully means recommitting yourself to God's purposes. It means recommitting yourself to God's purposes. Who finds peace in this passage? And when do they find peace in this passage? They find peace when they commit themselves to God's purposes. It happens in this chapter. In chapter 2, uh, beginning, David is committed to God's purposes because he says to, da- to God, what do you want me to do? Tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. David finds peace. He's committed to doing what God wants. Then in chapter 5, they finally crown David king and look what it says in, in verse 1 of chapter 5. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Finally, finally, God's promises are fulfilled. And the ones who find peace in the midst of all this situation are those who recognize this is what God wants. This is what God has always wanted David to be king. This is what waiting is for. If you are in the midst of a period of waiting, waiting is there to provide you with an opportunity to commit yourself, recommit yourself to God's promises, to God's purposes, rather. To ask in every situation, what does God want me to do right now? What is he trying to accomplish? What is God trying to accomplish in this period of waiting in my life? And recommit yourself to it. That's what waiting is for. It was a number of years ago I told you about uh, my admiration for my Aunt Alice. Um, Alice was um, in her late 40s when a few days after Christmas her husband, my uncle, uh, died and she was left a widow with two teenagers. And then about 10 years later, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor, terrible cancer. She went through everything that they do, uh, chemo, radiation, 
and as she was battling this over the, the course of months, toward Christmas time, she started to feel better. Doctors were close to declaring her in remission. And I saw Alice at a, at a family Christmas gathering. I was home from college, and, and I said to her, um, now that you've been cleared by the doctor, she, she could, she's free to go back to work after she'd been sick for so long. I said, Alice, what are you going to do next? She said, I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do. She's committing herself to God's purposes. I was talking to Frances this week, dear Frances Hershey, and she said to me, I don't know what God is trying to teach me. I want to know. I want to know what God is trying to teach me. See, she's, she's committed to God's purposes. Your period of waiting is a time for you to recommit yourself to God's purposes. Uh, several years ago, the New York Times ran an article about some executives at the airport in Houston. These executives came in and they were trying to minimize the complaints that were happening in the airport in Houston. And one of the complaints that people had is that they had to wait too long uh, for their luggage to come. So they'd get off the plane, they'd walk to the baggage claim area, and it took too long for the baggage to, to come. They hated waiting. So the executives at Houston at the airport, what they did is they hired more baggage handlers and they got a record-setting eight minutes, eight minutes from the time your plane pulled up to the time that it was in the baggage claim. It's a phenomenal uh, job. And the complaints still happened. They still were getting complaints. You know what they did next? They moved the baggage claim area eight minutes away from the airplane. So, so they separated it so that it took you, would take you now eight minutes to walk from the plane to the baggage claim area. And when you walk those eight minutes, there the baggage was right there for you. And you know what? The complaints dropped. Uh, Richard Larson is a, as an expert, a psychological expert on waiting. He says what really bothers people about waiting is unoccupied time. If, if you have something to do while you wait, you're more content. What do followers of Jesus do while we wait? We commit ourselves to God's purposes. We recommit ourselves to God's purposes. As we celebrate Christ's birth this month, can I remind you that we have every reason to recommit ourselves to God's promises? Remember that verse? It's a great verse. We quote it um, relatively frequently. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Here's the logic. Since God has given us his son, his son who is the best gift that God could have given, since God has given us his son, this great gift, this one who is the only one who could solve the problem of our alienation from God because of our sin, because there's no other way to the Father except through the Son, since God has already given us his Son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In comparison to the gift of the Lord Jesus, everything else is peanuts. It's peanuts in comparison to the gift of his Son. That is the logic of waiting on God. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for your great kindness to us through the Lord Jesus. And we're thankful to you for the great logic of Romans 8. Lord, um, we want to be faithful in the way that we wait for you. Some of us in this room are 
waiting out of fear and worry and grief and sorrow. Lord, I I pray that you would enable them by your spirit to wait by faith. Some of us are angry and manipulative and um, controlling in the midst of our waiting. Father, would you, by your spirit, work in us that we would be of good courage, that we would remember that you are the promise-making and promise-keeping God. Help us to wait faithfully. Do that work in us. Help us to encourage one another in that task to which you have called us. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.